Hello and welcome to Just a GP. Today you're here with Rebecca Beck Hoffman, Charlotte Hespi, and we have our long-awaited interview for Marisa Medeiros. She's here to talk to us about educating, mentoring, and being an advocacy. To get us started today, we're going to do our usual highlight of the week. And Charlotte, do you want to take us away with what your highlight of the week is? Thanks, Beck. Well, my highlight could be seen as a low light for some, but my highlight this week has been cleaning out our garages. I've had a long-awaited week off. Some of you might know I was supposed to have some leave earlier this year and something called COVID-19 and bushfires got in the way of all my leave. And so this is my first time off this year and for a long time. And we have garages full of junk. We're hoping to do a renovation. So I've been in those garages cleaning them out. And, you know, today I actually can see I'm getting there. (laughs) That's too many years of junk and dirt. I love a good clean out, but I'm not quite sure if it's ever a highlight of my week. I think my neighbours think we're hoarders because we do a council clean up every six months and we have always got something to put out in the council clean up. I think it's more having toddler related, but we have always got something in the cleanup. But isn't that an anti-hoarder if you're putting it out? Like oh, maybe. You're the hoarder if you're like me and you've got garage full of stuff because we have not been putting it out over the years. <laughs> Marisa, what's your highlight of the week? I'm going to share two. <laughs> the first one being that I start holidays tomorrow. So that's exciting to have two weeks off. But on Wednesday of this week, we actually had a medical educator upskilling day, which was fabulous. So it was all day via Zoom, but it was still recharging and wonderful to see everyone online and to share ideas and to learn some really cool new stuff. So we can't do that face to face, but we modified and adapted as we've all been doing this year. All day via Zoom. Yeah, well, I've done all day via Zoom meetings. They're okay yeah. if you have enough break and if you can see everybody and you don't have to spend too much time with PowerPoints. I guess it's probably not that different to all day of telehealth. Yeah, and we had breakout rooms as well. So, you know, there was some big group staff and then some smaller group and regular breaks was definitely key. Cool. My highlight is actually a really big highlight for me and I'm really excited about it and that that I'm actually a practice owner now. So as of two days ago, I've bought into my lovely little practice in Kirawee of Sydney. Congratulations. Congratulations. That is exciting. So scary exciting. <laughs> yeah, I have to sort of throw a practice owner party. Yes, need to. We're also doing Dry July as our practice, so we'll have to celebrate next month. We can celebrate all the way through, but it's so exciting. Such a big adventure and next chapter to have. It's wonderful. A very, very shiny, exciting ball. Yes, and having some control over how your practice runs for you and your patients. Yep. Exactly. So let's hand this big shiny ball over to Marisa. And I think I know you very well because you were my medical educator for a long time. And I think we might start by you telling all of our listeners a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Beck. So I'm currently working as the Regional Head of Education for the Central, Eastern and Southwestern Sydney subregion of GP Synergy, which is a mouthful to say. And GP Synergy is a regional training organisation which trains GPs. 
my region covers half of Sydney only. It's from south of the Harbour Bridge to the east coast and southwest down to Campbelltown and surrounds. So that's my main job. I also work clinically. I work in Cronulla and I also have a role with MDA as the GP member on the cases committee to make decisions. And I have also been doing casual work with family planning. I have two boys that are seven and nine, so that keeps me busy as well. And my medical education journey kind of started when I was a registrar. So I trained rurally, I trained in Orange, I went overseas for five years and worked in England and Ireland. I worked on cruise ships and then I said, you know, it's time to come home and do something else. And I decided on general practice because I love a bit of everything. And during my training, I had the role of the registrar liaison officer, which Beck also had, and registrar medical educator role. And then I've progressed. So over 10 years, I've gone from registrar medical educator and kind of worked through the steps of MEs up to the regional head role. I've been really well supported and nurtured in this career path by many great GP MEs. So my current role, I, you know, I've kind of outlined that geographical footprint, but part of that is overseeing 300 or so registrars, about 300 practices, 400 supervisors, and leading a team of 13 medical educators who all work in a part-time capacity. And of course, we work with multiple other teams in the organisation to deliver high quality education and training and support with the end goal being, you know, really competent, independent practitioners serving our communities. Well, that certainly takes us to how you got to where you got. You made comment about having lots of really good mentors and advisors. wonder if you could further that out a little bit and explain what did that actually mean for you? What did they do that made them great and helpful and all of the words we use to say that they've been really helpful, but what was it to you? Yeah, that's a great question, Charlotte. And I suppose it's probably some of the stuff that I try and do in my role as well. So it's recognising and fostering that potential and actively supporting growth of those skills. So, you know, taking my enthusiasm and using it to good, I suppose, and giving me opportunities that I might have identified or that I didn't know existed and guiding me in that direction. So they're definitely things that I look to do in my role with my ME team and, you know, both fostering and supporting women and men and trying to nudge people into those learning zones to get them to stretch and grow, hopefully without distress, and also facilitating opportunities. So being a bit of a matchmaker. You've described beautifully what they did, but how did they do it? For instance, did they just do it as an passing by? Did they formally sit you down and write lists with you? Did they email you things? The reason I'm digging into this is because I think one of the things we're often good at talking about the what, but we're not often really describe what's helpful in the how. That's really good because I actually wrote the hows (laughs) of what I try and do for others. I didn't write how that's been done for me. But I think it's a combination of, of that. So some of it's informal feedback, some of it's formal, really good, gritty, specific feedback. Some of it's, you know, having regular structured meetings and times to have these conversations. So working out goals and working towards them, sharing resources. So that might be via email or a text, sending a link 
through another resource. So I think it's, it's the sum of the parts. And the other hows are, okay, this opportunity's coming up. Why don't you present? Or let's present together. So my very first GPTech conference, a group of us did it together. And so I try and do that and say, hey, it's daunting to do it the first time. Let's have an idea. Let's do it as a team. And how does that look? And building that confidence to move on and maybe submit ideas by yourself. Yeah, so it's that collaborative leadership style, isn't it? Definitely. I think when I've had a mentor, you've talked on it a little bit there, the structure is just as important as the unstructured. I think when I think back to mentors that I've had, it's actually been really important to have a little bit of both. So to have the regular GP supervisor, I've got my regular weekly meeting, I know I've got something coming up then that I can save my questions for and ask. As much as the unstructured. So the person that you go to for the expert in this area or have been there and done that before and I know I can flick them a quick email or ask them a quick question or they get a random email out of the blue going, I saw this role come up and I think you would be really great for it. Does it fit in your plate right now? So I think you can actually be a great mentor in both of those hows. I don't think as a mentor or as a mentee, you have to do both. I think you can do one or the other. So I think if you're looking at being a mentor for someone, or if I'm thinking about the people that have been great mentors for me, they're often not both. They're often one or the other, but that doesn't necessarily make either better. They're both useful for different reasons. And But isn't that the joy of having a few people that actually do it because they have different styles and the different styles actually also give you a richer sort of armamentarian to call upon because different things will suit the people that you might be wanting to help too. I'm just sort of thinking about, you know, some people like to sit down and have a chat and others, it's really hard to pin it down. And so you have to figure out other ways to be helpful. I imagine you see that a lot, Marisa, in how you have to interact now with your team because being the leader now, that's your role to try and figure out how you can do that for everybody appropriately. That's right. And I think Beck's right in that mix. And do Charlotte's saying there's different elements. And one of the other elements I want to say is setting realistic expectations, I think is really important. So coming into medical education, everyone's doing it part-time. We're people that have high expectations of ourselves. And so we want to master something really quickly and saying, you know what, it takes time. It takes a year to get a handle on this and to see the whole evolution of the program and the changes that that happen across the year. So giving some comfort there, having understanding people's preferred communication styles. Is it, you know, face-to-face? Is it the phone? Is it email? And definitely we've been working from home for three months. So managing a team remotely is challenging. And we have um, a structured system of an annual formal performance review where we look at achievements and look at future goals. And part of that, I also do a a regular six-monthly catch-up to check that we're on track with those goals and, and, you know, what can I do to assist? And I've definitely been having more catch-ups during COVID, trying to meet everyone's different needs. And we've also instituted other ways to, to stay connected. So, you know, Zoom lunches or we've got another program teams and having uh, chats for different days of the week. The other thing is, you know, so checking in, as I say, and facilitating progress of those goals, but also thinking of ways to extend people that they haven't thought of themselves. So having a different view, but that's also a negotiation. So say, for example, education is one element of the role. And 
delivering and there's many elements to that it can be devising a session it can be facilitating a small group it can be presenting a lecture to a small group or to a large group and there's different audiences there's registrars there's supervisors there's medical educators so it's checking the desire of individuals and their comfort level and often it's almost like graded exposure to build that confidence level to get that end goal and not everyone wants to present and that's fine but looking at ways to facilitate that giving regular specific feedback is really important and in our clinical role we don't get that So it's been really interesting doing formal performance reviews and having people really value receiving that. And not just that once a year, but regularly throughout and in different settings, if it be for an education event or if they've been part of a working group, whatever it is, and seeking feedback. So I'm often seeking feedback from my team. I want to improve. I want to grow and learn. The other bits are explaining that leaders don't need a title. So you can be a leader in a variety of ways. And one example was we had a workshop where the facilitator was running late. And so suddenly we had to fill, you know, half an hour and watching the medical educators kind of group together, problem solve, come up with a host of different things to do to fill this time and watching one particular MA just shine and take this kind of leadership role naturally was great. And I suggested that this person apply for the RACGP Future Leaders. And they were like, but I'm not a leader. And I'm like, but you've shown leadership. You don't need that title. And so the other kind of thing is, so there can be internal or external opportunities. So thinking about internal promotions or going forth for other for other groupings and things like the external, the RACGP Future Leaders or going for some other committees. I'm going to go to this lovely concept of you don't need to be called a leader to be a leader because I think that as doctors, whether we like it or not, we're all leaders because that's sort of the role you have in terms of health with your patient population one way or another. And often I think we don't recognise that that's actually what we're doing and that whole sort of leading by example, how you advise them, how you listen to them and everything. But back to that young person who you tapped on the shoulder and said, go and apply. It is quite fascinating how for certain personalities, they need the tap on the shoulder in order to then go and step further into what leadership means rather than just sitting or innately with the skills that they have as a leader. Do you think that there's anything about that with some of you're seeing a lot of our well a massive lot of our junior doctors coming through general practice in terms of the way in which they understand leadership? Yeah I think that's very true Charlotte. So the people that I have shoulder tap to do a variety of things, probably wouldn't have put themselves forward. So giving that endorsement, that vote of confidence, that belief in their abilities really helps them progress. And that was done to me as well. You know, that idea of sponsorship, I suppose that, you know, oh, can I do it? Actually, Annabelle Crabb talks a fair bit about it in her book, The Wife Drought, especially that gender difference in your self-belief and do I have all the skills? I don't have them all, so I won't put myself forward. But if someone endorses you, then that propels you forward, which I think is important. So I, I am definitely seeing that. And so I actively try and do it. Yeah. And then we've also got that thing of that we sort of have a responsibility to do it more because understanding that people aren't going to necessarily 
naturally do it. I mean, Bex talked about the being tapped on her shoulder too. And can I say I was as well. So there's three of us here that have experienced that as a reason for moving your career into a particular direction. Definitely. And that's in all different areas. Like I I think it can be in multiple places and it can be sequential taps. So it doesn't have to be a massive leap. It might be, hey, try this and this is a nice step up and then try this and then try this. And it's like this gradual building up. And for sometimes for women or for some people in the stages of their lives, particularly, it's the repeat tap. So the it's not a good time now, but it will be in six months. And I might not tap myself again on the shoulder in six months, but can you come back to me and tap me again? And I find that particularly with times of childbirth or times of having toddlers or in your registrar years, when you are literally doing so many other things, yes, it sounds like an awesome idea and you really want to do it. And if you were any way sensible, you would say, no, not right now. And we don't all have the ability to say, no, not right now. But Going back to them and retapping them is really important as well because they may not be saying no because they're disinterested. They may be saying no because that's actually a really sensible decision for them right now. And I think the repeat tap's important. That's very true. Another topic I kind of wanted to bring up is another part of leadership is role modelling self-care and that ability to say no. So you need to have those repeated opportunities. But as someone fondly understanding of burnout, trying to learn to avoid it, but I can also foresee it happening in some. And so sometimes having to say, you would be great at this, but I don't think there's capacity right now, but this opportunity is going to come up again. Or there's the whole, well, you know, have a think about what you're saying yes to and what you're then saying no to. So so that balance or that juggle or the integration. I remember you speaking at a conference about how you actually worked that out as part of your family. And you said to your partner, I want to take on these extra roles. And he said, awesome, great move for you. I'll step back in some. That's true. Yeah. So I was working... Well, look, I was deluding myself thinking I was working part-time and then I realised I was actually working full-time. And so then my husband went part-time and took on the house stuff, which made a massive difference. And it is a team approach. And I often say this to my registrars, it's a marathon, not a sprint, and it's a team team goal. Getting a fellowship is a team job and you have to think about it that way. And also, you know, my capacity is not your capacity and our capacity changes with what's going on. So comparing ourselves to others is a futile exercise because things change, you know. There might be kids, they might be sick, you know, there might be other commitments that need to take precedence. And as you said earlier, a no right now doesn't mean a no forever. So don't forget me, come back to me. And that's for women and men. So I've definitely you know, shoulder tapped both for different opportunities that are related to their skills and desires. You know, where do they want to go? One of the things though I don't want people to have a message out of here is to wait to be shoulder tapped because if there's an opportunity that you think you'd like and it's there and somebody hasn't shoulder tapped you, that doesn't mean to say you're not the right person. So go for it, go for the opportunities. And, you know, and if it is exciting, and there's something there, then go for it. You might need to cut back on something else. But that doesn't mean to say that it's not the right thing to do. Totally, totally, Charlotte. Yeah, don't wait for the shoulder tap, have that self belief and go for it is correct. 
And sometimes it's really scary to do that though, and that's okay. The way I actually met Charlotte was I was a friend of a friend and I said, oh, who's Charlotte? What does she look like? And I went and tapped you on the shoulder at GP17 and said, hi, I'm Beck. I'm super interested in doing some stuff with the RECGP. And you said, flick me an email and it all went from there. But I was very scared of doing that and it wasn't scary at all and you are lovely and you made it all feel very, very comfortable. (laughs) Just as well. Exactly. But that first step is allowed to be scary and allowed to be big and doesn't mean it shouldn't be done and it definitely shouldn't be put off, but it was actually a really good thing for me to do. Absolutely. And for somebody like me who does have an opportunity to open up some ways in to doing things that help with career pathways, I'm always looking out for people who tap me on the shoulder to say, can I? And I love it. I love it when, you know, registrar students email me or come up to me and say hi, because then to me, that's sort of going, okay, you've shown some initiative, so let's go for it. You've tapped on the door, we've opened it, and then that's there. And for you, Beck, you just took that opportunity and you've run with it and it's been fantastic. And it's great to be able to do that with you you know you could have not bothered to email me and that would have been fine too if that was the right thing for you but you you did email and we were able to follow through it is really wonderful to have people show that initiative and interest and to be able to do something with it so sometimes it works straight away and sometimes there's a lag but you know it's planted a seed and you can do that matchmaking in time or come up with new ideas and it can be really exciting Yes, I've always had the motto, nothing ventured, nothing gained. As you said, Beck, there was that scare factor, but it was like, well, what was the worst thing that could happen? I could have been a really horrible, nasty person and go, go away. <laughs> or that I tapped on the wrong shoulder and it wasn't you. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I believe in, you know, it never hurts to ask. <laughs> but if you don't ask, you'll never know. And exactly what's the worst that can happen? You get a no. So I think we've moved topics into advocacy because one of the things that I think the three of us are very passionate about is women and women in leadership and trying to encourage more females to take on more active or non-active roles in leadership. And I guess the, the next thing I wanted to talk to you about, Marisa, was things that you're passionate about and passionate about advocating and how you essentially find time and balance or choose what it is that you're going to spend your time often for free doing things for. That's a great question. I don't know that I've that I've got a coherent answer for that one. I don't have a formula. I think it's <laughs> I think you know you get those opportunities, those shiny balls and you weigh them all up. And it, if it gets you excited, you want to do it. So one area that I've been involved in the creative careers in medicine, which I think both of you are aware of it. And so, you know, Amandeep started that up. And the goal is you know, there are many ways to be a doctor. It takes a whole host of different people to work in this profession and we're often exposed to a very narrow range. It is getting better. And so it's just, you know, I took the path less travelled. It's just showing the options that exist and it's about longevity. It's about longevity in the profession and in having a fulfilling career. And so it's not taking away from GP, it's augmenting that. My personal view is that 
none of us should work in clinical practice forever. Like I think you do it for periods, but I think it's kind of unsustainable and having side gigs helps to recharge us. And so that's one of the ways I get involved and advocate within our organisation. I'm involved in various parts, but one group's the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders Registrar Group and trying to support that group of registrars and being involved with things like IGPRN and, and different elements. IGPRN is Indigenous General Practice Registrars Network. Doctors Health is another kind of passion area of mine and I have said no there to doing bits. So I'm hearing that your passion for advocacy is very much about well-being and what you've done is thinking about some of the avenues where you can have the biggest effect in terms of both how do you put the message out about looking after yourself, what are some of the patterns of behaviour to make sure people stay well and how do you ensure that registrars coming through learn good patterns for long-term sustainable happy careers. Would that be a fair enough statement around that advocacy bit? Yeah, I think that's a really good summary. You know, I've got that one-on-one with registrar, so Beck's heard lots of my messages. So there's the one-on-one, there's with the larger registrar group when we have elements. There's there's also the supervisors, there's to the ME group and organisationally we, we value that as well. Do you have any measurable outputs then for you as a medical educator that might help you know how effective some of that advocacy has been? That's a great question. I mean, there's there's different surveys that we run at the end of training, but as we all know, there's lots of elements that come into the training program. We do have some kind of regular evaluations of the medical education team, and we talk about that and wellbeing comes up a lot, and we have kind of monthly commitments. That is an, an output measure. But it's hard because the measure of the advocacy essentially inspiring that probably won't be seen until they're new fellows because you're a registrar for such a short period of time. So much of the focus is on exams, just to get through the exam as a registrar. All of the other stuff and all of the other reasons that the medical educators are so inspiring to registrars, they probably don't even reflect on until their new fellow years. And then they look back and go, yeah, I do remember hearing about that or looking at that or what was that lecture that we did or self-care, self-care, self-care. And that's when you're probably going to see your measurable output is actually at the end of their new fellow time when they go, yeah, that's when I can take on more advocacy or more leadership or whatever your mix is. Yeah, see, I'm going to challenge you there, Beck, because I reckon to really have it measurable, you've got to have a goal. So what is it that you want the registrars to have finished their training with well-being as a measurable market? And you think about then a question that you can ask them that puts as to how important certain aspects of life are and where they put them on a scale, for instance, and maybe what their intention is. And you could put that with a question when they first come into training and then see whether at the end of training it's moved or shifted or at least stayed the same and hasn't. I mean, I don't know. I'm sure there's a lot of things out there in terms of goals, but the biggest thing is deciding what is it that you actually want to have them 
prioritising and then figure out a question that you can ask that's both at the beginning and the end. Basic minimum would be that you maintained it, particularly knowing that they've done exactly as you've said. They've had the, the huge stress of getting themselves through their fellowship. I think it's really interesting because I, I think the circumstances are different for everyone. The priority is getting through training, usually in the quickest time possible. And so at the start, you know, I talked to everyone about it's a marathon, not a sprint, slow and steady. What's important? Do you have a GP? What keeps you well? I say the same things at the end. Think about, you know, what does the future look like for you? Plan in regular holidays. For you, do you need one once a year or, or would something every three months work? But it, there's not a one size fits all. And well-being is such a subjective measure as well, I think. And then you'll see some people who have challenge after challenge after challenge, pick themselves up and keep going and are positive throughout it. And others who don't have the same challenges but have a different take on it. I'm not saying it can't be done, but I think it's, it's an interesting concept and a lot of people feel that there's so much outside of their control. I think there's some bits outside that are fixed, but there's a fair bit that you can control. Yeah, it's a really difficult time of life, isn't it? Because as you say, most people want to just get it done. So then they've got more choices, etc. Because while you're training, there are requirements that you have to tick boxes for, which then mean you have to do things that you might not otherwise have chosen to do in order to meet those requirements. But I suppose that's the same as when we're going through uni. I mean, there's lots of things about uni that you wouldn't do, but you have to. You know, for me, there's a number of courses that I had to do knowing that the end was that that was an experience that added value to me in the long term. And I suppose it's the fellowships like that. But it's a good thing to ponder though, isn't it, in terms of how do we make sure that everybody is aware that that well-being thread is that priority? Because if you don't prioritise you, you can't prioritise others. That's right. And we talk about that the community deserves a healthy doctor. And so if you're not well, can you do that? And how do you do that? How do you maintain that? And again, bringing it back, the goal is providing high quality care to our patients and to our community. And it's imperative that we look after ourselves as part of that process. I'm going to take this opportunity to segue into our resource of the week. I have some so many good takeaway lines from this session. It's incredible. But I think I'm going to actually steal one of Marisa's resources of the week and promote creative careers in medicine. If you're not on their Facebook page, if you haven't been to one of their webinars, they're a wonderful group full of inspirational doctors who either have trodden their less worn path or have done something and then changed their mind and done something else or have 12 different careers at once and are juggling many shiny balls. They traditionally have a meeting or a conference every year. I think this one this year has been altered or postponed from a usual one due to COVID and the same reasons that changes are happening this year. But their Facebook group's amazing and is an amazing discussion pot for anyone who's interested in non-traditional medicine. Charlotte, what was your resource of the week? I'm sort of going to go to just an article that I found really fascinating, which has come out of the discussion that Marisa led about mentoring and being a leader. Because as those who listen to Just a GP know, I am 
very much interested in leadership and what those qualities are and how do you actually help people do the best they can. And this particular article is from Harvard Business Review and it's called Eight Ways to Build Collaborative Teams. And the reason I'm sharing it, it's quite an old, well, it's quite an old article, depends on what you think of old. It's from November 2007 by a woman called Linda Gratton and another one called Tamara Erickson. The reason I like it is because although it's actually written to businesses rather than health and general practice, there's some things in there that are really nice. And one of the eight is around about the idea of mentoring and leadership. And they talk about this gift culture, which is about actually giving of yourself to others so that they can learn skills along the way without it sort of seeming to be anything except that sort of gift. So sending ideas via email, being there to encourage and collaborate and having them join in, making them feel like they're as important as anybody and everybody in the team so that there is no sort of that nuance of your opinion counts the same as anybody else's. And when I think about general practice, that's a bit like in my general practice team, we make sure that we have these group GP meetings weekly where everybody has a right to put in ideas to help the practice be innovative and come through. And I mean, COVID-19 has been that classic of you have to have people leading from the top, but that whole thing about making sure everybody is on it and is collaborative together is really great. So eight ways to build collaborative teams. Excellent. 2007 is not that old, I'm sure. And Marisa, I apologise, I did steal your resource of the week. Have you got another one buried away? I do, I do. That wasn't even actually my resource. So on the CCM front, I'm pretty sure the conference is about the 12th, 13th of December, uh, the Novotel at Brighton. That sounds like a great resource, Charlotte. I actually wanted to mention that I heard an excellent definition for mentoring this week. It was learning and development partnership which I thought was fabulous and and follows on from what you said. I will get to the resource of the week. But also another thing is that having professional support for your leadership, and I've had the opportunity to have that, which has been wonderful. It's so beneficial. It's challenging, but but it's really worthwhile. So I've been reading Brené Brown's Daring Greatly and Daring to Lead, and there's just too many fabulous parts of those books to mention but lots of kind of aha moments. And another great book is Essentialism, which some of my key messages from there are, we always have choices. We, we may have limited options, but there's always choices and doing nothing is actually a choice. I don't know if I'm allowed to do this, but I did want to mention, we, we touched about gender before and, and I wanted to say that I'm really fortunate uh, in my organisation to be working with a fabulous team and that there's a really large number of females in leadership roles. So our Director of Education is female, CEO is female, COO is female, lots of the regional heads are female. So that's inspiring as well and helps progress people. Yeah, well, particularly when you consider more women are GPs now than men, I think it's important that we ensure that the leadership reflects that. Definitely. Thank you so much for coming along to speak with us today. I don't think we even covered off one of the things we were going to talk about, but we'll just have to have you back again. And have a lovely weekend, everyone. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Marisa.